Grizz Greats, The Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 10, the final full episode in the series of Grizz Greats. And this one, we're so very happy and excited to bring to you Robin Selvig, the head coach of the Montana Lady Grizz for 38 seasons, maybe the only person in the history of coaching culture who managed to coach in three times as many conferences as teams. When he opened up in 1978 and 79, the uh, Montana Lady Grizz played in the Northwest Women's Basketball League, and then four years later were part of the Mountain West Athletic Conference before another six years after that, becoming part of the Big Sky Conference. But Robin Selvig, the head coach for 10 years before Montana entered the Big Sky Conference in women's basketball in the 1988 and 89 season. But Coulter, where do you start with Coach Selvig? 865 total wins, 38 seasons. Banners with which you could clothe an entire nation if you use the material for shirts. I mean, we're talking about unprecedented success compared to just about anywhere and one of the absolute all-time greats, not simply at the University of Montana, but in the sport of women's basketball, period. In the context of this podcast, this interview, I think that the part of Robin Selvig's life as a Grizz that gets forgotten is that Robin Selvig himself was an outstanding player. Yes, he was. Robin Selvig, if not for a knee injury, would have had a chance to be one of the best Selvigs to ever play at Montana. His brother Doug was a thousand-point scorer. His nephew Derek, years and years later, became a great player for the Grizzlies as well. Robin Selvig played for Judd Heathcote for the, his four years at the University of Montana from 1971 to 1974, but he did not get a chance then to play on that team that went to the NCAA tournament either. So he was on that the first good Judd Heathcote team that won 19 games and tied for first in the Big Sky Conference. But that was before the Big Sky Tournament existed. That team lost a playoff game, essentially, a one-and-in or one-and-done playoff game with Idaho State in 1974, and then Selvig was a part of the program, but not – I actually was coaching high school at the time. Right. But but still connected, obviously knew those guys, but didn't get a chance to experience that glory of winning a game in the NCAA tournament like Montana did the following year. But the Selvig lineage, it runs so deep because when Robin Selvig took over at the University of Montana in 1978, one of the great players on the roster already was his, his younger sister, Sandy. And there's been many Selvigs, both men and women, that have gone through – uh, and then Sandy's daughter, Jordan Sullivan, ended up playing for the Lady Grizz. Doug's daughter, Carly Selvig, ended up playing for the Lady Grizz. So a bunch of family ties here as well. But once Selvig got it rolling, he got it rolling. 13-13 and 13 in his first season, second in the Mountain West, won 19 games in year two, and then went on a streak. I don't even have enough time to count it. i got to take off my shoes to count how many times they won 20 games in a row, about 19 seasons in a row with 20-plus wins. The only losing season coming in 1998 when he lost a couple of his best players to season-ending injuries and had to play at Dahlberg, excuse me, had to play at Missoula Sentinel High School, not Dahlberg Arena during the renovation of Dahlberg Arena. Right. But then back at it, back to the NCAA tournament at the turn of the century and just kept on going, kept on going. If you go to Dahlberg Arena now, there is more banners than you can even count hanging from the rafters. 18 regular season Big Sky Championship banners, five Mountain West regular season championship banners, four Mountain West tournament titles, 17 Big Sky tournament titles. Selvig was the five-time Mountain West Coach of the Year and a 15-time Big Sky Conference Coach of the Year. When he retired, he ranked seventh all-time in women's basketball history in victories, and he still remains one of the 20 most prolific winners in the history of college basketball. 
Yeah, well, there's no question that in the history of the University of Montana, regardless of sport, he is the greatest coach in its history. The other thing, though, too, and why we wanted to interview him for this series, which is decidedly about the men's coaching tree, well, first of all, there's not really a coaching tree on the women's side. It's a trunk, and it's him, and so that's pretty great. But also, he was front and center for every one of these coaches, including Travis DeCure, who was the head coach at the time that he retired. And so he was a colleague, uh, in fact, hired by Mike Montgomery uh, initially, which is, is, is sort of an ironic turn but was certainly a contemporary, a parallel coach, shared you know the offices and the sport with every single one of these men's coaches, and I think also went from being you know a first-time collegiate head coach and kind of learning a little bit to a guy who other coaches later on down the line would come to for advice, not just on basketball, but on any number of issues, and uh, is so very well-respected and interacted in a very uh, uh, obviously direct way, but also to the point of some of the great friendships. I mean, Stu Morrill to this day is one of Robin Selvig's best friends, as you will hear throughout the course of this uh, conversation. And so a guy who had that first-person sort of direct access for 38 years of Montana basketball, he on the women's side and then the men on the men's side, and I think that that's just invaluable to gain that perspective. And so we certainly appreciate him sitting down with us. Talk to Montana State head coach Trisha Benford, who's now one of the longest-tenured head coaches in the league at 15 seasons during her time in Bozeman. And she said the number one thing that coaching against Coach Selvig taught her was the importance of stability and the importance of identity. And she said, the, I thought this was such an interesting comment. She said, you could watch film from when Shannon Kate was playing, now Shannon Schwain, when she was playing, and then you could watch film from 2000, and you could watch film from 2005, and you could watch film from 2010. And the players change, certainly some of the offensive sets change, but the identity, what the Lady Grizz are going to be about, play disciplined, hard team defense from start to finish and out-rebound you every single game never wavered. It was the same for nearly 40 years. And Bidford said, that's what I've been striving for in my program. And now you saw this year, Montessa really did catch that where they actually had the identity fully yeah. formed and they tied a school record for wins. But Robin Selvig, he found it early on in his career and then never wavered from it. I think that so many coaches overthink things so often but Selvig recruited hardworking underdog players from around the region. He never went outside of his scope. He was never trying to just open up a new pipeline in San Francisco or Phoenix. He just recruited Montana, Idaho, Eastern Washington. That's it. That's all. Get hardworking, hard-nosed players that wanted to be a part of something that's bigger than them, and they did it. And I think the biggest testament you can give to Coach Selvig debuted the documentary of the house that Rob built at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival here in Missoula last month, 130 of his former players showed up from all over the country. That's right. Amazing that that is they had the, the two, reach he has. Two screenings scheduled for that in two different venues holding hundreds of people, and they had to schedule a third because it was so well attended that they needed needed space so that everybody, that thousands of people could end up seeing that film when it came out. So his impact, you're right, Coulter, on the community, certainly on the sport, on the university, unquestionable. It's also worth noting, it's not just the amount of wins, it's the win percentage too. This wasn't 865 wins in 1,500 career games. This was 865 wins in just over 1,100 career games. 455 and 109 is what Selvig went against the Big Sky Conference. 
This guy was winning 75% of his games for four decades straight. And during the absolute peak of it, you're talking about more like winning 95% yes. of his games. Yes. During the 1980s, they went 15 and 1, 16 and 0, three years in a row, and then 15 and 1 again. That is an unprecedented streak that I don't think we will ever see again at mid major college basketball. Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree Podcast Series. Golter brought to us by our friends at Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Mike Bryant knows the community, knows the region as well as anybody. You go to Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate, ask for him. He's going to help you out. Mike Bryant's been a real estate broker in Missoula for more than 20 years. He's been following the University of Montana men's basketball program for more than 50. He's a member of the Grizz Roundball Club and still plays basketball twice a week. He wants to make sure that Travis DeCure, if he's listening to this podcast, Mike's still got a year of eligibility remaining, so he wants to be on the short list. So if you need an extra guy for your pickup hoops team, your city league team, or you need real estate advice, whether it's residential or commercial, whether you're buying or selling, or you just have questions about the local market, give Mike Bryan a call, 406-370-8734. That's 406-370-8734. Mike Bryan and Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate, your local real estate experts. Well, we certainly want to offer our warmest thanks to Coach Selvig for joining us and talking to us about uh, 38 years of basketball at the University of Montana. Please enjoy our conversation with Grizz great Robin Selvig. Well, welcome to another episode of Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree, and we are very happy to welcome in studio of all places uh, for this one the head coach of the University of Montana, Lady Grizz, for 38 seasons and for the duration of many of the coaches on the men's side of this coaching tree, Robin Selvig. Coach Selvig, thanks so much for being here. Good to be here. Well, we uh, we got plenty to talk about, but we want to start for you as a player for Judd Heathcote, who has uh, been referenced, I guess, as the godfather uh, to, from a lot of these uh, guys. And, and he's somebody who uh, obviously had such a, an unbelievable career. But at that time, when you came to play for the University of Montana, you know, in, uh, in the 70s, what was it like to play for Coach Heathcote? And how did, how did your relationship even begin? Well, Judd came, uh, became coach my sophomore year. I was recruited by Lou Rochelo and played one year. And then uh, Judd Heathcote got the job, and we had actually heard some horror stories about Judd um, <laughs> coming over from assistant at Washington State. And uh, it, it was an interesting thing. I, I, I'm blessed. Uh, I have to credit my coaching career to Judd. Um, he was tough, and he was different than, than I was used to, t- type of coach, his approach. And there was some shock, shock and awe for a while. But he really uh, taught me the game of basketball and uh, learned to love him. And uh, he's, he's as good a coach as, as there ever, ever was, I, I believe. And he, he has a tremendous record with the national champion at Michigan State. And remained pretty close to Judd uh, over all the years and – uh, he passed, uh, I think it's a year and a half ago now, and uh, a bunch of us that played for him here in Montana got to get over and visit him about a year before he died, and that was pretty nice. When a coach like that, that's a hard-nosed, tough coach, takes over, a lot of times that's a hard transition no matter what. I mean, if you're not used to the hard style. So what do you remember when he first came aboard and some of the challenges he presented to you guys, and how long did it take for the team to acclimate? Well, I, I don't know for the team. It, it probably took a little while. It was... Uh, I mean, he was really tough. I think from the outside looking in, I mean, just watching his practice for a fan was was shocking. I think every every minute was intense, and he really got. You had to be 
you had to be a player to to finally learn to understand what was was really going on. And it took me a little while. I was uh, I, I was in, suffered from a little depression early on. I think I hadn't been told that I couldn't play basketball in a number of different ways, and and uh, <laughs> uh, just wasn't used to that. But uh, like I said, the perception from the outside watching him would be way different from those of us that played for him. And it just, it, it took a little getting used to. He, he really was a caring individual. And uh, uh, the not only the knowledge he taught me about basketball, uh, which is which was a ton, um, just his level of intensity and uh, what what you put into what you put into it uh, really raised raised us up. What was playing in Dahlberg Arena like back in those days? Well, to start with, uh, and, and I came in '70, so it would have been '71 when Judd came. You know, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a great atmosphere, and each year that Judd was here, it grew. Uh, we lost a playoff championship game in my senior year uh, to Idaho State that would have put us in the NCAA's. But each year it grew, and and Judd really uh, drew fans. Uh, his antics, which none of them were contrived, that was just Judd. <laughs> that was just Judd being Judd. Um, uh, was you know brought brought some interest I think to 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 Missoula and of course we started having success. Uh, his success is what puts people in the stands and and uh, things things grew grew from then on and just kept growing. You know when you finished playing, you became a, a coach on the JV team for a couple of years before going on to Plentywood and was that a, a natural transition? How did that happen? Well, it really was. We actually had a freshman team then. Uh, right. The freshman right. couldn't play on the uh, on the varsity till till that year. And I, uh, Kevin Roshel and I were coaching the freshman team and we had a good team and you traveled and you, you played quite a few games. We'd have won a lot more games because that's the year Michael Ray came but freshman could play <laughs> on the varsity. And I lobbied to get him on the freshman team but Judd wouldn't go for that. <laughs> And so I had one year uh, coaching with him. That's the year we, we almost dumped UCLA when we, we had a great team and had a good chance to win that game. And Eric Hayes had the huge game, but uh, had a lot of good players on that team that uh, that I played with. But it was my fifth year, and I had some school to, to finish. I, had a, I, I graduated at Christmas that year, so uh, it was a natural thing. And I knew I wanted to coach by then, so it was natural. When freshman, the freshman team, like who were you playing during that time? Well, there was uh, we played some junior colleges, and but there uh, quite a few ju- junior colleges. But Montana State had a freshman team, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Washington State had a freshman team, and so there was a there was a ready schedule there. You said you knew by that time that you wanted to coach, but when did you kind of discover that hey, this is the path that I want want to go down? Well, I knew 100% for sure after my last ball game as a college player here when we lost that. It was a close game to Idaho State and uh, locker room, and the season was over, and my career was over, and I just sat there and went, why? Basketball's been a big part of my life uh, since I could walk, and I just couldn't imagine not, not staying involved, and uh, I, w- I was going to be a coach. Growing up in Outlook, Montana, Basketball, how did it first land on your radar? How, how did it become such a huge part of your life at such a young age? Well, basketball's huge in Outlook, Montana. <laughs> yeah. It used to be, anyway. Uh, they don't have a school now, um, as a lot of the little high-line schools don't have. But, but growing up, basketball was everything. Uh, we, we were in the gym every chance we got. Uh, long, cold winters up there. There's not much else to do. But uh, every every little kid in Outlook dreamed of going to state and and. Uh, you know, being a, being a basketball player, sports was really big in eastern Montana, and it's produced a number of 
great athletes at, at the Big Sky level. There's been a lot of players from Eastern Montana come down, but it, it was a big thing. Jim was always packed, and every game was a big deal. When you went then to be the head coach at Plentywood, did you think that maybe the high school route would be a career route where you might stay on that track, or was that a place where you're like, hey, I can get some experience and kind of see what comes up? Yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking ahead. That was what I was going to do is coach in, in high school, and I actually thought I was taking the boys' job at the time, uh, and the coach there uh, decided to coach another year, Zuni McLean, good friend of mine who's since passed away, but uh, I'd be home in the summers and playing with the the guys up there stuff, and I knew they were going to have a great team. We won a state championship at Plentywood, I think, my second year there. But uh, the superintendent called me, and after I had accepted going to Plentywood to coach, and asked me, uh, "Say Zuni's going to coach another year. Would you buy, would you be interested in taking the girls?" And I said, "Sure, I'll, I'll take the girls." So that's how I got into women's basketball. How long had there even been a girls team? Just a couple years. Yeah, I mean, it was just started. was 1972, I think, when Richard Nixon signed into law. I think people started picking up girls' sports, I think, 73, 74, so it must have been... I think they had high school basketball for two years up there before okay. I got the job. I, uh, uh, it was it was just absolutely beginning, mm-hmm. and uh, but I had a great high school experience. I had young ladies that uh, were so wanted to learn and, and grow, and, and uh, they believed everything I said. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a good experience with them. A lot of people thinking they're going to get a job and then not getting that job, getting a different job, maybe don't take that job or, uh, you know, feel one way or another about it. Why Why were you okay with that? Why was that something that you, you know, still were happy to, to do? Well, it's from home, really. Outlook's 18 miles sure. from Plentywood, and my wife had gotten a job uh, at the in the grade school there. And I probably was thinking, I'll, you know, Zuni's probably going to go one more year and I'll coach whatever. Well, uh, coaching was coaching. I enjoyed coaching the ladies a great deal. They, they played really hard, and we, we ended up going to state my third year there. We were actually a Class A school then, which plenty was down to Class C now. That's how few of there are. We were the smallest Class A school, but I enjoyed it, and uh, it just I'm not someone that was really thinking down the line, oh, I'm going to end up being a college coach or pro coach or anything. I just had a team to coach, and I coached them. After getting done playing Division One basketball yourself, what was the biggest challenge learning how to coach not only girls but high school girls? Yeah, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't even approach it any differently than you know, I coached guys, obviously the freshman team, and we coached at camps, and we'd coached women at camps. Women were starting to have uh, basketball camps. I had three sisters, uh, two of which uh, one played college basketball, one played high school, one never had a chance to play because there was no women's high school basketball. So uh, to me, there was no difference, and uh, I didn't approach them any differently. I had the same demands I would have out of, out of any, and uh, uh, I had a great career there in terms of the, uh, thinking a great deal of players and good relationships with them. And I really was fortunate in one deal. I mean, seriously, they, they were so ready to learn. It was a new opportunity, and I could have said, shoot it. Over your shoulder, backwards is the way you should do it. And they said, "Okay." Right. And uh, but it was it was a little interesting because you know I had a couple. I, I, I remember one gal came and said she was going to miss practice the next day because she had to clean the house. And I said, "No, that's probably not a reason you get out of practice." But they 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 loved the opportunity. They took and, and it was the same when I got to college. I mean, this was new opportunity for them, and they made the most of it. There was no 
questioning what the coach was saying or we deserve this or I deserve that. It was, man, we're thankful for the opportunity and let's make the most of it. One more question before we get in your transition back to Montana about Judd Heathcote. You mentioned that he's one of the great coaches that you've ever been around, but when he went to Michigan State then, and I mean, he, he rose to such a level of national prominence. I mean, that 1979 Michigan State team is one of the most iconic teams in the history of basketball with Magic Johnson and that run to the NCAA tournament title. So what was it like being a guy that had played for him and knew him to watch that rise to such prominence? Well, it didn't surprise me because uh, I just thought he was a great coach. I actually got to see that game with – Larry Bird and them mm-hmm. was in Salt Lake City, and uh, Judd must have got me a ticket somehow because, but it was in the top row up there. I remember that. Um, but <laughs> well, it was, you were there. You were there yeah, to watch there. Magic yeah. Johnson versus Larry Bird. Yeah, wow, it was it was exciting, uh, exciting to see, and uh, it did not surprise me. I just uh, th- thought the world of him. I can't imagine someone being a better coach. He actually offered me an opportunity to go Michigan State and be an assistant coach in that time and, and get into men's. But I was, I was. Thoroughly enjoying what I was doing, and and uh, thankful for that that he thought enough to offer that. But I was doing well where I was. Well, Bird Magic to tell Nuanas, you got a pretty damn great ride, coach. <laughs> That's going good for you. Oh yeah, Judd often told me he was really fortunate he got to coach both me and Magic. So. Yeah. <laughs> It'll get much better now. So there you are at Plentywood and enjoying it and your home, and then uh, uh, an opportunity comes from Mike Montgomery to hire you because he had become what I guess the czar of basketball at the University of Montana with those powers, and and it was I guess you and Tara uh, uh, Vandermeer who were kind Vandermeer. of the final two for for that spot. How did that? transpired what what made you want to come back to the university for well that? it was interesting because when i first thought of it the job was was open and and uh, both my wife and i loved missoula and a chance to come back but you really didn't know what was going to go on with college women's basketball it was in its infancy but the chance to get back here uh and uh i had a sister that was playing at flathead community college who was going to transfer over if i got the job and uh, anyway, I just loved, loved Missoula, so it was an opportunity. It was a teeny bit more money than I was making in high school. And, uh, you know, Mike, as you said, was our, our program was different. Then Mike was in charge of basketball, so he was, if you made a diagram of it, it was men's and then women's yeah. underneath it. But Harley Lewis was the athletic director right. who I knew very well. And... Uh, he was uh, actually doing the hiring. I wouldn't have got hired if I uh, hadn't convinced Mike that I'd be okay to hire. So I interviewed, and there was not only Tara, but uh, Sue uh, or Pat Dobratz was another one that was after the job, and she ended up getting the job at Idaho later on after Tara went to Indiana, and she had a great career. I played against her. She was a very good coach, too. So there were some real good candidates, and uh, I— you know, just interviewed and uh, sold myself as best I could that, uh, and, uh, you know, end up getting the job. Was that the first time that, that you had met Mike, or did you know him from before I, I didn't all? know Mike. I'd met him, but I didn't know Mike. I, the, I played for Judd and, and Brandenburg, and I, I know Brandy very well. Brandy ended up getting the job after him, but Brandy hired Mike. Uh, Mike was an assistant at Boise at the time, so I didn't know Mike well, and, and uh, uh, part of my job was to convince him, I think, uh, you know, Mike is a tremendous Hall of, Hall of Fame coach, but, uh, you know, he had his own program at the time, and I think a little leery, I don't know if leery is the right word, maybe that here's a Judd guy, 
mm. you know, and, and Mike mm. and Judd are close and, you know, but you, you want to be your, your own program and hopefully convinced him, or I think I did at the time that I was going to be very happy to be learning from him. I mean, I've been blessed my whole career being around great men's coaches, you know, what your podcast is about. I've shared an office basically with every one of them. So I've seen a lot of them and, and I've learned from all of them. And, uh, that's another thing I was very fortunate for because when I started here, I got to watch Mike, what he was doing with the, with the men's program and, and learned a lot from him. Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot, our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot, connect to more. What were some of the big challenges facing the women's game when you first took over? Well, it was just different. We were not, uh, you know, we we grew rapidly, but there was, I mean, I remember when I first got the job, we we had a 30-second clock way before the men but they didn't have them up on the basket I had to go set them up before the game and uh, you know just the little things like that I mean we weren't treated poorly but we had no scholarships we had 12 fee waivers uh, mm, when I first got the job and so things were just in its infancy and and uh, but certainly nothing to complain about uh, right I didn't complain I was in, interested in coaching the athletes I had not worrying about uh uh, you know, we stayed in a few Motel 6s and things like that in the early <laughs> days. And one thing I always tell about that is it's an NCAA violation, but we weren't NCAA then. We, I don't know if the old Motel 6s used to be cost, I think, a quarter or 50 cents, and you'd get the key to the TV. Uh, so you could watch TV. Well, if we won, I'd get the key to the TV, and they'd, they'd be able to watch TV. And that would be, that would be it. <laughs> um, you know, you look back now, and I, you and you and Coach Montgomery became friends. You know, over the time that, that he was here and you were here, and you look back now and you look back over Hall of Fame careers and all the success that you guys had. But at that time, you're two relatively young guys coaching in Missoula, Montana, somewhat off the beaten path, and not with the notoriety. You'd certainly notoriety here, but not the notoriety that that came to pass over time. What was it like in those days to be, you know, a head coach? professionally with, you know, Mike Montgomery and then, you know, later uh, Stu Morrill and so on, and living in the in the late 70s, early 80s in Missoula, Montana, a very different time than, than it is now. Well, it was great, actually, because Mike and, and uh, Stu Morrill, as you said, who was his assistant, who's one of my best friends, uh, was here, and then Bob Neal's another, another one. that we, So we were all relatively close to the same age, and we did things together. We golfed, and we played noon basketball, and it was a great group and great friends to this day. We hooked up with Bob and Trish Neal, and I've kept very close touch with Stu. And uh, and it was, you know, I was I was sad when Monty left. You know, we had become pretty close. I we played racquetball a lot. I, I don't know that I ever beat him because he had played a lot of racquetball, and I was just starting, <laughs> and I didn't like that much. But kind of funny, the last the day he left, the day before he left, we played the last round of noon basketball. I broke his nose. <laughs> <laughs> got him with an elbow. I don't know if I've ever told anybody that. So, Tim, we always laugh about it because then we went out to the depot that, that night for dinner, all, all of us. And he, <laughs> Here he is with black nose. and blue. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and again, the main thing, I mean, Monty, as I learned just watching how how he coached and stuff, you learned so much uh, 
being around him. What specifically did, do you remember about his coaching style that rubbed off on you? Well, he was really a great fu- fundamentals coach. Mm-hmm. Little things made a big difference and uh, extremely well prepared. I never, I think my coaching style in some ways was different, but uh, he, he, he could take and, and, and they'd play someone and he'd, he'd be able to put in a box and one and stuff like that. And I never felt comfortable messing with things like that. But I learned so much just from, I learned in terms of drills and in terms of what you demand from the players. And uh, I stole a lot of plays over the years, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, they stole a couple of ours. But because uh, I, I know one of them they stole was not a bounce play and they called it girls. Uh, <laughs> but I stole I stole a lot of things from all of them. Each, each year I'd get a couple things from the guys to put in new. And even though our basic philosophy was the same over the years, I like to think we, we changed and grew with the game. You mentioned Jim Brandenburg. He's such an interesting figure in this because I know he was so essential to helping support Judd and was uh, such an essential part of that whole time. And then when he was here, he was only here for a couple of years and then he was gone and had such great success at Wyoming. But I think that he gets a little bit lost in the shovel because he didn't have the six to eight to ten year tenure like a lot of these other guys did. But what do you remember about Brandenburg? Well, Brandy was, was a great basketball coach as well, and very close to him. That Judd and Brandy was, I mean, a million stories with them. But they were both really good. And I remember we played at Wyoming uh, when Judd was, when when Jim was the coach there, and I I went and watched one of his practices. We were waiting to practice or something. I I, I just remember thinking. Oh, yeah, that that's those are little things that's had slipped from my mind and what great things and he had a you know, he had NCAA teams with Dembo and I mean he just had a great career there and had a hard time getting it going at San Diego State because I think it was a hard time to get it going at San Diego State mm-hmm. at the time. They were gonna build arena and all that and never did. But uh he he was really close with uh with Judd. They stayed in touch over all those years and uh um Jim still still in he's in Texas doing okay. You said uh, you know you and Stu Morrill became great friends and are friends to this day. What was it about him in particular that that you guys became so close? I don't know. Just we we shared a, a number of things. We we both had two boys at the time, similar ages. Did a lot of things with him and his wife Vicky. You know you you hang with guys. We played racquetball and golf, and and I got to watch him take over. You know there was there was talk at the time. Would Robin go for the head coach job in the boys? I mean, back in those days, that you know, that came up, and there wasn't even ever thought of that because Stu Morrill should get that, should have had that job, and he did get that job. Uh, I think he was assistant for eight years. Then he went, you know, he obviously went on and had uh, great success here. Then success at Colorado State, and then unbelievable at Utah State. What he did, he built the program into national contender and. But we just uh, we've we've kept in touch over there's both both of us on retiring spend a lot of time on the phone at talking to each other about hey, what's this going to be like and so on we we've we've kept pretty close touch. Blaine Taylor's a guy who's not that fun to talk to. He's pretty <laughs> uninteresting, not yeah. funny, any of that yeah. stuff. You know, you're sharing an office you know space with all of these guys as they go on, and each each person is different. What changed? Was there a change in sort of the atmosphere of the place when a guy like Blaine Taylor, who's such a big personality, kind of takes takes over? Yeah, you know, every one of them was different. They're all unique in their own way. Blaine, Blaine, I'd known for lots of years because he's a Missoula kid that got recruited here, sure, and, and had watched him play in high school, and and we became good friends as well. And he's a, 
you know, he was a great student of the game and a great teacher of the game, and he was around all the same type people I was and uh, learned a lot <laughs> watching his teams, and uh, he obviously has, has had great success. But he's someone I, I knew personally for a long time, so we were good friends uh, as he was coaching and even before then. During the 1980s was such a time of transition, especially for just where you guys and Lady Grizz were at conference-wise and the way the game evolved. First NCAA tournament was, I think, 1982. I think you guys qualified for that, right? So when, when that first landed on the radar and the Lady Grizz are going to the NCAA tournament, and there is an NCAA tournament, since you'd experienced it on the men's side, you knew how cool that experience could be. But what do you remember about when that was first instituted and, and just kind of the news that, hey, the women are going to have a big dance too? Well, it's interesting. The first, the first year they had a tournament, there was only half the teams that went for it. AIW was the Women's Association. And totally different rules than when NCAA. Well, NCAA, there was quite a little battle of we, do we want our own AIW or are we going to go NCAA? Well, it was easily answered because NCAA started paying money to go to the tournament. AIW didn't. We went to the AIW tournament one year, and I'm not sure the administration was pulling for us or not. No, that's not true. <laughs> but you make it, you pay and go. So there was a lot of different things involved. In the first year, there was an NCAA tournament and an AIW tournament. And the next year, everybody went. It was all NCAA, I believe, is how that worked out. So, yeah, I mean, it was a thrill to go and exciting. And, you know, that's one of the experiences I'm really proud that uh, actually every girl that played for me, experienced an NCAA tournament over those years. And, of course, NCAA grew. They, they didn't pay for quite as many to go as the men's to start with, you know, where the men pay 75 with the band and the cheerleaders. It started out less in the women's, but it's it's grown as well, and uh, it's just a thrill to, to be part of. The money aspect of this is so interesting. We, uh, like, say, for example, when you guys went to the – AIAW tournament. Where did the money come from? Did, were you guys having to raise it yourself? Well, it, yeah. I mean, it had to come from your your school, your administration, and so on. Of course, uh, back then, I, I, I we were we weren't drawing and making a lot of money yet. Then that one of the first couple NCAA tournaments where we hosted, and we we could host NCAA games, which we did a number of because we started to draw, and they looked at that as well. We hosted Oregon State, and all of a sudden, four thousand some people showed up and which was like you know we were pulling out extra bleachers because nobody expected that and that kind of kicked off the attendance following uh, in that regard so and then we you know it was a big selling point for us in recruiting and everything else that we had a fan base I mean we and we were a revenue producing program but we played at top 20 places around the country where there'd be 500 people there max and we averaged as high as 5,000 but it started to grow uh, pretty fast in in the 80s and a lot more fun to play in front of somebody <laughs> than it is to not, I think. And, and, and uh, so our crowd following was a big part of our success. Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast, is brought to us by our friends at Stockman's Bar. Coulter Stockman's Bar has been a staple in downtown Missoula for, well, ever, as far as I'm aware. And they have certainly been supporting Montana athletics and Montana basketball for a long time. In fact, an absolutely outstanding documentary called The House That Rob Built, chronicling the life and times as a head coach and in general the influence on women's basketball and basketball in general of Robin Selvig was released and the documentary post-party, not surprisingly at all, hosted and held at Stockman's Bar. 
130 former Lady Grizz came to the debut of that film, and then most of them went and enjoyed some delicious draft beers or maybe a cocktail. And, of course, Dobie's Teriyaki. The history and lineage of University of Montana men's basketball is literally written on the walls there. Literally. I was reading an article about Mike and Donnie Larson's father, who started Stockman's Bar way back in the day. This article was from the Missoulian circa, I think, 1979. Wow. And it was talking all about his allegiance to Grizz Hoops, his love of Judd Heathcote and Jim Brandenburg. What a perfect connection to the University of Montana men's basketball program. They've always been supporters, both in terms of employing student-athletes and supporting the team. And you can find the Grizz team stopping in there for lunch at Dobie's Teriyaki quite often on the, when they go on their upcoming road trips as well. Stockman's Bar from open to close. They have $3 beers, and if you get yourself some Dobies, they even have $2 beers. But the beers are always cold, and they have a variety. It's not just domestics. It's not just a couple crafts. It's every beer that is on tap. They also have drink specials throughout the week. And, of course, they still got poker going on in the back as well. So head on down to Stockman's Bar. Fierce supporters of the University of Montana men's basketball program for more than 50 years. When you're up against or, you know, side by side with all the coaches on the men's side as you go, and you already talked about sharing, you know, plays back and forth, was there a point in time where you would go to say, you know, maybe Mike or Stu and ask for advice or so forth? Or was it always pretty mutual? And was there ever a shift where it became, you know, you you became the guy who was looked up to and had been had the veteran presence and that these coaches would come to you and say, Rob, what what should I do here? How should I do this? Oh, I think I did more asking than, than those guys. <laughs> yeah. um, we did. We shared. I mean, we'd have a, a little coaching retreat at the Flathead or something, and we'd all be there and X and O and so there was lots of sharing of, and I always felt respected by them. But uh, you know that's what coaches do. You, you share things. You go to a clinic and you get ideas from people. And we we all we all did that. And and every men's coach here, even though they kind of came from the same tree and there's a lot of background uh, together, they they all had their own. You know, they they did their own things as well, and uh, which was really great because. That was my. I'd, I'd see something new all the time, when it, whether it was Tinkle or Holst or who, whoever it was. Uh, you know, there's just been a lot of them, and uh, I think that was helped me be successful. Was it hard to follow the men's program since you guys were always playing at the same time as they were? Or, or how, did, how did that element of it? Uh, work? Well, we didn't always. Early on, we had some double headers, and mm-hmm. we all, went on the road in conference and played. Doubleheaders sometimes. So, and then of course there's no covers. I've always followed the men close. Of course, I played here, and uh, and and I probably the toughest time for me coaching in terms of stress and stuff was I had a brother playing here too. Right. So you know he was playing, and so I'd be stressed out in their games as much as ours uh, watching <laughs> him play. But it was also a lot of fun, and uh, I think I was just about as happy when Stu won the conference here at home. Uh, I was just about as thrilled as when we win because it was a little awkward. They were very successful, all of them, but they hadn't won as many tournaments. They hadn't gone to the NCAA. They hadn't won as many championships. It was always I always felt a little bad because they could have. They were good and didn't get a break here, break there, and we did. And you know we're celebrating uh, NCAA, going to the NCAA, and, and they're not. So when when they were too, I I think I leaped pretty high that when they won that thing at home and advanced. You mentioned having your sister if I had community college and then came here. To, did you actually coach her then? Yeah. So what yeah. was that experience like coaching your own uh, sister? Yeah, yeah, a little tougher for her than me. Sure. <laughs> I coached my two nieces too. So <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, uh, she was a very good player and 
and it was all it, it was all fine. I'm, I'm glad, glad I had them, and probably like I said, more stressful for them than me. You know, kind of an interesting space and time on the men's side when when uh, Blaine decided he needed a, a, a change of venue and went on with Mike, and then they hired Don Holst as an interim guy, and I think for that year in Sentinel High School. Uh, so a very tough scenario that he kind of came into while they were rebuilding Dahlberg. But then he ultimately did get hired, then gets let go, and the one guy who you know is sort of, quote, outside the family comes in, Pat Kenny, with tremendous credentials, but maybe not the perfect fit for a couple years, and then into to Larry Krasoviak after that. What do you remember about that sort of space of time well it was an interesting time and not not the greatest time for us from the standpoint of you know that year in sentinel uh, that wasn't a lot of fun uh well it wasn't a lot of fun for lady grizz in particular because we lost six kids to injury that year we mm. not only played in sentinel but we had we had uh as the team is now suffering we had a more than our share of injuries that year but we still it was still a fun year to coach the the ones we had left played awfully hard and and, and we did okay but being away from here for a year. And that whole thing came about, at, you know, I, I originally was sold as, and I don't know what went wrong, as we weren't going to be off campus for a year. There was going to be a campus gym where we'd play. And so a uh, little tough transition in there. Uh, Don Holst went to the NCAA, which is right. a pretty good, good accomplishment in itself. And Pat, I, I don't know if I'd say he wasn't a great fit. I mean, he's he's a really good coach. I learned stuff watching him coach and, and visiting with him too, but just – the timing and everything for him didn't work out right, and and uh, the, it was just a tough transition time, I think. And then, you know, like you said, then then comes Larry and then Wayne and uh, back to the Montana ties. That year, too, was, I mean, it's the only, it's like the outlier year of your entire tenure, right? I think it's the only losing record you guys ever had. You mentioned the injuries in Sentinel High School, but just on a personal level, what was the frustration level like when you were trying to go through that? Well, you know, it, it, it's not fun. I mean, you get paranoid about people getting hurt, but I really did enjoy the, the ladies I had. I mean, they competed, and I, I think we won a game at the tournament, and we ended up a couple games under 500, but we, it's not like we didn't win some games. And But the main thing was you want kids that are going to play hard for you. Your expectations are for your team to be the best they can be, and that team – was as close to that as as I thought others I'd coached. So I, there was some fulfilling things in it too, though it's not as much fun when you're losing games as winning games. You already said, you know, it didn't even surprise you that Judd Heathcote goes and wins a national championship. But one of the impetuses for this podcast series has been the remarkable careers that these coaches have gone on to have almost to a man after their coaching at the University of Montana and how remarkable from a frankly small school and a small conference D1 okay but still it's the it's Montana and Missoula basketball and these guys going on to these great jobs we know obviously you know Larry and 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 uh and Wayne now in the Pac-12 and 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 great does it supp- not surprise you what did you what do you think was going on with the University of Montana that that propelled those guys to such heights well, I think, you know, that that's not something that happened in the big sky very much. Most, yeah. most men's coaches leave in the big sky is because they took lost their job. That's how you you leave. Sad, right. sad but but true. There weren't many. Weber had a couple, uh, Mata, and, and uh, they, they had McCarthy, and they had a little bit of a tree there. But I think once, you know, Monty was so successful and, and got the Stanford job, which was uh, a pretty big deal, at the time you came from Montana with Stanford, that kind of thing wasn't happening much. And then he was successful. And then, of course, he, he's followed up with with Stu, who 
did a great job. And I think once it, the not the legend, but once people saw, well, oh, these people can be successful. I, I think it was uh, it helped each one of them go on to the next job. And and how important too when when a guy like Mike Montgomery is now vouching for you as a reference on your resume and that sort of thing. Obviously, you have to be successful where you are, but that that builds on itself as well, right? Well, no question. And you, you got Judd and you got Brandy and you got Monty uh, calling for you. And uh, people look at your success. And I think another one of the things that was very helpful to all of them is Montana's a place that does it the right way. They got kids that graduate. Uh, they, they don't have bad kids. Uh, you know, they don't have lots of problems. I mean, every place has some problems, but, you know, programs like that, ADs like that, they, they're looking for people that do it the right way, which is hard to do. I mean, you're going to graduate everybody and, and, uh, got to win a lot of games you know pe- people want it all and and, and sometimes that's uh, not easy to do and everybody here did it the right way and, and went to the next job and did it the right way do you think success breeds success in the scope of an athletic department in other words when the Monta- when the men's program's doing well does it help the women and the women's program doing well football i mean there was a moment there in the early 90s when you guys have won a couple of NCAA tournament games. Football has a role, and they win a national championship. You know, Blaine is taking his team to the tournament a couple of years in a row. So, I mean, does that does that foster itself? Oh, I think it does. I mean, there's a there's a culture and a, and a feeling of, of, of places that are successful that uh, that you're going to do it right. You're going to and, and you you anticipate winning. You don't take it for granted, but you know that's the goal. And uh, I think that that definitely can can carry over from from sport to sport. Chris Greats, The Coaching Tree, brought to you in part by Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Berkshire Hathaway has a reputation as the state's most knowledgeable and available real estate group, and that's helped them build unmatched trust in the Garden City, around western Montana, and statewide. Gary Bryan and the Bryan team understand that buying and selling real estate, whether it's residential or commercial, can be a very stressful process. And they're here to get your back no matter what it is you are in the market for. Or even if you just have questions about the real estate industry in general. Gary Bryant of Berkshire Hathaway Montana Properties is proud to support Montana Grizzly Athletics. He's been selling residential and commercial real estate in Missoula County for over 25 years. So give Gary Bryant and the Bryant team a call today. 406-880-4141. That's 406-880-4141. Gary Bryant and the Bryant team at Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Berkshire Hathaway, your local real state expert since you've finished coaching and retired when you look at the job that travis is doing i know travis was there toward you overlapped a little bit with travis what did you think about travis as a coach when he first came in and what what do you see now in the program where it's at under his leadership i've been nothing but impressed with travis i uh, i think he's a great coach and you know, talking about people that do it the right way i think he does it the right way uh he's got very high standards very ethical and just extremely knowledgeable of the game, and he's and he's able, he's able to recruit to the kind of ball he wants to play. You know, he's been at Cal, and he's been, been at Old Dominion, he's been around, and he's a, a West Coast guy. But uh, you know, he likes to up tempo, and he likes to pressure, and that's that. I think he's developed in his recruiting that kind of program for the way he wants to play ball. When they weren't quite that the first year or two, they still were good, and they, he was able to play. <laughs> not play that way. And I think the mark of a successful coach is obviously if you can go recruit exactly who you want, you can play any style of ball, but that doesn't always work when you're out of Montana. I mean, I would have loved to have been less, less press and score a hundred every game type coach. Well, not really. Cause 
I wanted to guard him and not let him score. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you but, did. <laughs> but when you, if you can't go get that kind of athletes or that athletic team because you're limited to, you know, I really wanted good basketball players. If they were quick and fast, great. If they weren't quick and fast, great as well. We'll we'll play a different style. What sort of rift in the relationship with Wayne Tinkle was created when Jocelyn did not come to the University of <laughs> well, Montana? I mean, did, no, you well, go, did you go set the fire, the fire on the mailbox no, or what? No, I, I was depressed for a while, but I, <laughs> I, I understand, uh, you know, both Ellie and Josh, great kids. Yeah. And uh, obviously were great players and had great careers. That was a, the, the thing that hurt for me there, not, not, I mean, I understand you get a chance to go to Stanford. You could easily go to Stanford, but we... Uh, you know, we competed on a national level somewhat, and we certainly picture ourselves that. And the what's what enabled us to do that was getting some really good Montana kids. Yes, uh, we weren't going to get a Just Tinkle if she was in California. Sure, we had a chance. You know, if she was here, and her mother was a great player mm-hmm. uh, for us, a great player. So it's, that was no, there was no big, uh, certainly understandable. And they both had they both had great careers, and I obviously know both of them very well and sure. they're wonderful kids great people i got two questions on that on that note first of all the way that recruiting has evolved for a long time it seemed like montana montana state were really the only schools recruiting in montana sometimes you might have washington state gonzaga come over here but now it seems like people have sort of figured out the best girls in montana are really good i mean they're good enough at least to play in the big sky oftentimes good enough to play in the pac-12 and the mountain west and we've seen so many girls in the last 10 years like Joss and Ellie and Jill Barda and Liv Roberts, Liv Roberts and Kristen Tillman and a whole bunch of great players have gone out of the state. You know how, how much? What do you think of that evolution and how has that impacted the, sort of the the way that the two schools recruit? Because it seems like some of the talent that might have stayed here twenty five years ago leaves the state. Yeah, and and Montana girls were getting pretty recruited pretty hard even even before then. You know, Mandy, who we lost to Arizona yeah, Mandy State, Morales, but came yep, back. Yep. Uh, but uh, Lori Payne from Haver, who we sure. really wanted, was successful. And Karen Deedon from Deedon, Missoula. Yeah. So there was always – Montana girls have been get recruited. Fortunately for us, there's been quite a few good Montana kids. You don't have to get them all. And we never could get them all because you can only take so many. So Montana State, you know, they, they were going to get some too. Uh, but there's really has been a lot of, of high-level Montana girls uh, play basketball. And of course, Shannon, who played for me, mm-hmm, was an mm-hmm, All-American. Mm-hmm. And, and – uh, uh, and and then I just had we had lots of good players that were Montana kids, but you know those like a Joss or something like that. If you happen to get them, that can move you up a a notch in terms of national competition. And and uh, but what I always said when we lost someone, um, that means we got someone else, and, and and ended up loving them, having them. So that's the way that works. The last time Shannon was in here, she told a great story about when she was getting recruited, and she said. You know, back in the, the late 80s, we don't have the internet. We don't have all this stuff. So she said, I was getting recruited by Vanderbilt and, you know, schools from all across the country. She, she said she remembered we'd go to the public library to look up what, where is Vanderbilt? What is Vanderbilt? <laughs> yeah. How can I get here? And she said, you know, I could just go to Missoula and see this place, and this is, like, great, and so here's where I'm going to go. So I, I just wonder if that has an impact on it, too. Well, it certainly does, and that's one thing we got going for us a little bit uh, early was we had crowd. You didn't used to recruit them quite as young. When they came to visit, it was during the recruiting process, and they could they could be there at a game and experience that atmosphere. If they went to somewhere else, another big name school, but they go go to one of their games, they go, it's not quite the same here with three hundred people there, and uh, 
I remember Shannon, I think, had visited Kentucky. And, of course, when she went on the visit, there was they had a men's game. It wasn't a women's game because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the women's game wouldn't have been very impressive in terms of crowd and atmosphere. Well, I, I remember I mean, we moved to Missoula in 1992. I mean, going into sixth grade. And my family, my, my siblings and I, all basketball playing kids for whatever reason. Not good, but basketball <laughs> playing. And Your sisters were pretty good. They were pretty good. We went, <laughs> But we went to Lady Grizz games. That's what the family did. We didn't go to football games, really. We didn't go to men's basketball games, really. It was the Lady Grizz, and we, you know, Sherry Brooks was kind of became a little bit of a family friend over the, the course of time. But that, that was the event for me at, the, you know, at that time. And that's a remarkable thing in reflection because that, that simply doesn't exist almost anywhere else in the country. Really rare. And, uh, that was something that was almost unique to us. Now, yes. You know, you have Tennessee and obviously Connecticut now. And sure. I, I remember in scheduling, I used to try and find places that drew people because I thought it would be a better experience to go play there. We, we had a series with Southwest Missouri State when they were Final Four type team. And we DePaul is a place that draws. And Tennessee, of course, we had a series with. But I just it's a lot more, I just think, fun of an experience for the kids to go somewhere where there's, there's some people at the game. You mentioned when you guys first were able to host NCAA tournament games and how that was sort of one of the dominoes that fell. What else went into building the great fan base that you guys had? Well, I think uh, you mean success is one thing. Mm-hmm. You, you got to have success. They're not going to come if you're not winning. And I think, you know, I honestly think in lots of women's basketball programs, if people gave it a chance, if they went, I mean, there, there just was an impression, and it was so long ago, that oh, women's basketball, they're not going to be very good. In fact, I remember. We did a, a, a preseason, and not an alumni tape, but we did a media one uh, with guys like you who were out there playing against the Lady Grizz. And, I, I, and, and I, seriously, I know that those guys thought that they'd beat the Lady Grizz. But it was all guys. <laughs> and I, I think we won 85 to 40 or something. <laughs> I, I just think the fact that the more people saw, mm-hmm. oh, these, they're pretty good. You know, and oh yeah, they're really good, and, and and the competitive aspect of it is just the same. It's never been any different. They're just as intense. They're just as tough, and and so what what a fan wants to see is skills. You know, John Wooden at one time, it's quite a few years ago, and I said the women's basketball game is a better game. It's more pure basketball. That was about I, I don't know what year it was, but he made that comment when when the men's game had kind of turned into their wrestling under the basket. I was ever bigger, stronger, foul grab. And, uh, you know, the women had, had to pass and shoot, and they don't dunk. So there's, uh, if you're a basketball purist, there's lots of good things to see in a, in a woman's basketball game. The fact that you guys had so many in-state girls, too, I mean, that, that had to play a huge factor. I think it did, and, and uh, that's why I'm fortunate that Montana produced so many players. Like I always say, we, you know, we were, end up ranked in the top 25 the one year we had all Montana kids on the team, which mm-hmm. is which is real unique. I mean, our poster that year was all of them in their high school letter jacket. They were all Montana kids, and we end up 17th or something in the nation. I can't remember exactly what it was. So that was unique. But we recruited the best players we could get, and and uh, the, the, our fans loved the Washington girls, the Oregon girls, the Idaho girls, just as much as they did the Montana girls. But we didn't have a real nationwide recruiting budget type thing. We had we had plenty to go recruit, uh, you know, nearby states, and we would have taken players from anywhere uh, that you could get. But the thing was, the, the only thing I did was if I wasn't sure an out-of-state kid wasn't sure they were better than a Montana kid to recruit, and I always went with the Montana kid just because we are the University of Montana. Yeah. 
Um, I know the answer, there's a million answers to this question, but within the context of this podcast, you know, you've been asked many times, well, why did you choose to stay when you obviously had plenty of opportunities to go? But now that you've been an aura in Missoula your whole career and you live here, when you look back from of the guys you worked with from Travis all the way back to, to Judd to playing for him, do you feel, is that something that that is a partial answer maybe to that question uh, to to have had all of those relationships that you you would have had other relationships other places certainly but those guys in that you know desk next to yours all those years and and how special is that to you well it means a lot to me because they're all you know they're personal good friends and f- yeah. families are friends so that that was always something good but I understood them going on and I think my situation was different. Um, you know, I never really seriously thought of leaving ever. Uh, I liked it here. We're raising a family here. Um, we were nationally competitive or always dreaming of taking the next step. And I loved my teams. I had great kids playing for me that played hard and it wasn't all wins and losses that creates you a positive experience. And I'm not a big city guy. I, I, I would never enter my mind to live in a big city. That's just not my nature. I like to visit them, uh, but uh, I don't think I'd be happy. But, you know, some people are leery of change, and sometimes change might be good if you give yourself that opportunity. But I, I, I really liked it here too much, and I, I never, uh, you know, I, even till the day I decided to retire, I was always thinking, well, next year we're going to take another step type thing. And, and uh it, you know, that got harder and harder to do just because of the growth of women's sports. Where when, when In the early days, not every big school had a great program. Not every small school had a great coach or a great, had, had the means to do things with. So there was some, some, it was easier to win more games. Now to compete at the national level, which I felt we still did in a way, and the fact that you're playing on the road in the NCAA, almost all the time, you're, you know, we're playing at their place. Know, you're a 14 seed and you're playing at their place. Um, uh, you know, it was a little tougher that way. Still think it could have happened. You know, we almost beat Louisiana Tech, go Sweet 16 and stuff. But, uh, you know, you got to believe in, in your players and yourself, and, and, and you always dream of taking another step. The, the, you mentioned recruiting Jocelyn Tinkle. Lisa McLeod played for you. Th- that situation replicated itself a lot of times. You know, Jordan Sullivan and Carly Selvig, your nieces got the chance to play for you. But that's a very rare thing to have somebody that's been at one place for so long that he gets to coach the mothers and then the daughters. Oh, the daughters! I had more daughters too, Haley Vining, and yep. we had, we had, uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that just means you've been there a long time. But it was, <laughs> it, was uh, it was that was that was kind of neat. That was fun. I mean, when you talk about and lots of people say, "Well, we're our, we're a family." Well, we were a family. Uh, that's that's the way it was, and when I retired, and a whole bunch of them showed up, and it was a family gathering, and that was that was a lot of fun. Two years ago in Reno, we covered a game, uh, a women's basketball tournament game between Portland State and Idaho, and I think there was 34, 35 three pointers combined <laughs> in that game. I think the final score was a hundred to ninety seven <laughs> or something crazy like that. But the women's game has implemented now the three point shot more than it, more than the men's game. Honestly, when you watch it, I mean, now you can get these little guards that might be five five, but they can shoot the ball so well. 
that size doesn't even matter. I mean, the Savannah Smith girl in North Colorado, those girls at Idaho. I mean, they're they're shooting as prolifically as anybody ever. What do you think of just what are the main changes you've seen in the women's game over the last handful of years? Well, and that, that's a change that came in the men's game as well. Mm-hmm. The, the three point shot obviously changed it uh, a lot. It's been there for for quite a while now, but that 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 changed things. And I just think the normal growth. I mean, there was. You know, we were known as a great zone team, and people would be, oh, I've got to learn to play zone and zone. And people started to attack the zone better. And it got to be where they had four kids that could make a three instead of just two so you didn't guard the others. You know, the talent level grew. So we had to adjust and do maybe we play man or maybe we adjust how we play zone. So that's one thing. It's never boring coaching. It's always evolving. It's always growing. And then each team you have is different because there's some different players. So you have to figure out what is, what is this team going to do best. And I always made a – a point that it was their team, you know. Uh, I was the coach, but this each I think it's very important that the, each year was about their team. I'm part of their team. It wasn't about me uh, because each team was was really different. And, and uh, um, I, you know, so I think uh, I think we adjusted with the growth of of the game, and it's it's ever changing. You know, there for a while there. You know, Bobby Knight was a man-to-man team they never saw, and then all of a sudden Judd, the 2-3 zone was, and then there was a bunch of schools doing 2-3 zone for a while. Now there's hardly any teams doing 2-3 zone again, but Syracuse in the men's side. And uh, so it's a constant battle of, that, that's the chess part of it for coaches, you know, how are we going to play and what we're going to do. But it, it uh, the three-pointer was a definite big change. And, man, it was hard guarding some of those kids in this league. Now, we had some good three-point shooters mm-hmm. too. I'm sure people didn't like guarding Sonia and Mandy and, <laughs> In you know trying to cover them, but uh, those Idaho girls last year, holy smokes, that was two really deep and deep shooters. Drive you, you'd be sleepless the night before. Well, coach, we uh, we thought we'd ask you which one of these coaches on the men's side is your favorite, uh, but we know <laughs> that it's Stu Moral, so there's no no reason even to ask you anymore. One one more question for you though. The rivalry with Montana State. Nobody in the history of the University of Montana has been in more. Rivalry games against Montana State than you have. When you hear Montana State, what comes to mind? Ah, uh, well, it's. I think I mellowed on that a little over the years. It was a really a bigger deal to me because it goes back a long ways. Montana recruited me. Montana State didn't out of high school as a player, mm. wow. and it wasn't a big deal back then. We I hardly knew where Missoula or Bozeman was. Come from Outlook, Montana. I mean, we we followed Eastern Montana and Rocky Mountain, where one of my brothers went. Um, but that, and then when I when I first got the job, they were supposed to beat us by about twenty. They had a good, really good team, or their coach said publicly better at every position, and uh, we won both times that year, which were big thrill games. And then and then we didn't lose to them for a number of years. I don't know how many. So that got to be at stress that we haven't lost and blah 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 blah. And they've had they had some good teams, and they have good teams now. And I try to downplay that. Uh, that whole game, just because I know everybody's going to be, the kids are going to be so jacked to play because used to be we didn't get that as near as much media attention, but that week you would. Right. So the gals could sense, oh, this is, a, this is a different deal. And it might be on TV, which is our only game on TV. So it was bigger. And, of course, I know I have relatives that went to Montana State. But they aren't part of the family anymore, but they went to Montana State. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have good friends that played there. I mean, I think the rivalry—I don't think it's out of hand in the women's side. I think in the football side, it's it's a little out of hand. But I don't think it is 
with the players. I think I think the players respect each other and, and are trying to do the same things. And I think the coaches are more that way too. I mean, we're all trying to do the same thing. We all want to win. I felt bad when we beat them. I mean, it isn't that fun to lose. So that rivalry is great because of the attention it brings, but it, it, it really needs to be a healthy one because that's fun for everybody. And I, and I think, I mean, my former Lady Grizz are good friends with Bobcat gals they played against, and uh, that, that's the way it should be. Robin, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot. Our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot. Connect to more. Well, our thanks once again to Robin Selvig for joining us. What a fun, enlightening conversation. And again, Coulter, I mean, you just can't recreate the history, the time that he spent as the coach, the things that he saw and did as a head coach, and to uh, allow us to be privy to a lot of that, especially in terms of his relationships and his observances on the men's uh, coaching tree as they have come and gone, but been overall just so tremendously successful there as well. Really a treat to talk to him. You'd be hard-pressed to find a school with his, that's had as much men's basketball success where the women's basketball coach is still the pace setter. Right. And Selvig was. When Mike Montgomery was chasing that NCAA tournament bid, Selvig could just say, hey, buddy, I'm going every single year. Let's pick up the pace here. Yeah. Same with Stu Morrill. Stu Morrill talked about that in his episode about how kicking down the door made it so that Robin Selvig could stop holding it over his head that he was going dancing every year and Stu Morrill had never been to the big dance. So... Uh, fascinating that Robin Selvig was able to establish that sort of clout at the University of Montana, but fun to hear his stories. And, man, it's, it's so interesting every time we have him sit down in the studio because the guy is a living legend, yet he doesn't even know that, let alone think about it. He, well, doesn't he certainly know. doesn't care. I don't know he doesn't, he doesn't well, know, he doesn't, but right. You're right, you're right. He knows, but he doesn't identify himself as That's that. Right. He's just the same nice guy from Outlook, Montana, and uh, what a guy, what an experience for us to be able to to hear his stories and share his stories because he's an unforgettable piece of history, period, in the state of Montana. Be on the lookout for a couple of bonus episodes. Uh, we did interview his uh, nephew, Derek Selvig, as well. So uh, check out uh, that bonus episode. But we certainly appreciate Coach Selvig sitting down with us, as I said, and uh, really fun to do it. And this whole podcast series has been uh, an absolute joy. Our thanks to every coach, all 10 of them, who were very generous with their time sitting down and talking with us. We hope you've enjoyed this series. If you came in here at the end, go back. You can listen to uh, all nine on the men's side of things in addition to this one as well. But for Colton Nuanas, I'm Ryan Tutel. Thanks for listening to Grizz Grace, the Coaching Tree Podcast. (laughs) 